welcome to episode 94 of Literary Disco, The Real Muslims of Irving, Texas. Today we will discuss an essay in the March issue of Esquire written by Colby Bazell, all about mosques, Muslims, and anti-Muslim protesters in Texas. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey guys. Hey! Hi! Hey! So today's a sad day. Yeah. Yes. Today was the day that uh, Harper Lee died at the age of 89. That's a pretty Mm. good run. You know? Like, if you die... Like, 70, I think, is the line at which you can't say it's a tragedy. Like, if you if you live to 70, okay, that's not a tragedy that you died. If you live to 89, people are like, that's a, she had a great run. That's a good life. Yeah. Okay. You know what's remarkable? What I kept thinking about, because, you know, driving in the car today, I kept hearing it on NPR, like, coming up, the announcement, or every, every basically every news hour that I heard, they, they talked about Harper Lee dying. And I kept thinking, she really only wrote one book. Right. And it's just mm-hmm. crazy to think that she achieved this status. I mean, to me, it seems a little outsized. What do you guys think? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I love To Kill a Mockingbird, of course. I haven't read it since I was, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13. I loved it. But it's it seems pretty crazy to me that somebody who only wrote one book, really, that it, she's known for, gets this much sort of... Well, worship and credit and I, I read the book recently, uh, not long ago, um, and it's an it's one of the most incredible pieces of literature ever written. And I think if so, of course, Ghost Set of Watchmen came out uh, this past year and we can talk about that a little bit. Um, but the thing about um, To Kill a Mockingbird is it's not just a great piece of literature. It is a call to arms for social justice. Mm hmm that right. came out at a time when the nation desperately needed it. Um, so right. when you think about it in that context and that it was so wildly popular at the time and has maintained its popularity even after certain civil rights and social justices were achieved, then you begin to understand, I think, the cultural relevance of that book and of her as a mm-hmm. human being. Um, because you read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in the 1980s and it means something you read it in the 1990s it means something you read it last year when um you know black youths are being shot on the streets you know things of that nature and Mm -hmm. it's directly applicable to that as well so you know i i think the acclaim is not outsized for the creation i think if she had gone on to write 10 or 11 or 12 or 15 books or whatever that in fact it would have lessened her acclaim. Um, yeah. That 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 is the one thing apart from Ghost of the Watchmen um, adds to the lore and the mystery of it, and it, and it makes you feel like she wrote the perfect novel, so therefore she didn't need to write anymore. Yeah, I feel the same. And you know what you're saying about social justice, Todd, reminds me that she is a an echo of another writer who we don't care about as much anymore, but is still a household name, which is Harriet Beecher Stowe. You know, same thing. Right. Um, right. A cool white lady writing about race in America. Well, that's what I, that, I think that, that, isn't that part of it? For, they, for me, it's like, oh, we're going to celebrate these white ladies when, you know, you have these. I don't know. I mean, yeah. obviously, like someone like Toni Morrison gets plenty of attention, but certainly not the mainstream sales, certainly not being taught in schools to the same extent. I don't think that 
Toni Morrison is taught in schools, I think. I hope so. It wasn't in my generation. Mm, Like, Toni Morrison was sort of just happening, you know, just becoming the the giant, literary giant she was when I was a kid. So I don't think it was was standard. I'd love to think that it's becoming more of a standard text. Well, you also have to think about it in terms of the time period in which she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. There was not a ton of African-American women voices being published in America. So that she was able to write this book about... Um, you know, racial injustice in a small town in the South, the only likely chronicler of it would be a young white woman um, at that time. Um, Whether or not that's fair or right is, you know, it's outside the fact that that was true. Um, So, uh, you know, there there was a, a, I remember a review of um, the movie The Blind Side. I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie, the Sandra Bullock movie. Mm. Oh, yeah, horrible film. Um, I think it was A.O. Scott in uh, the New York Times who said of the movie, it was something along the lines of, it reinforces the idea that the best thing that can happen to uh, a young African-American is to, to meet a rich white person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing. I don't, I don't remember exactly if, if that was the line, but it was pretty close. Um, and, you know, maybe that comes from that lineage of To Kill a Mockingbird, but it doesn't matter. To Kill a Mockingbird is, was an incredible piece of literature in a in a capsule of that time. Also. Well, and I want to. This is such an interesting conversation. We are ready today, um, because you know I I definitely take issue with, you know, Toni Morrison's taught in schools. No, I'm I would bet a lot of money that she is never going to reach the level of of this because Toni Morrison writes about violence. You know, she writes about rape. She right. writes about. Very violent things. So part of the magic formula for To Kill a Mockingbird is it's a YA novel, essentially. Mm -hmm. You know, it's told from the point of view of a child. It's very closely related to Huck Finn in that way. And I think and I hope and I'm sure that we're going to get a lot more stories making it into the curriculum of people of color and their experiences more directly. But if we're going to do that, we have to understand that it's going to be more of a Ta-Nehisi Coates point of view where we have to accept violence into our art in our schools because it's just right. inherently a more violent experience um, at this time in our country. So, you know, it's really interesting having Ghost at a Watchman come out right before she died because we all had to go through this acceptance that you know, right. maybe revise the legacy a certain way. Sure, so. sure, but it seems right. so appropriate for our historical moment to say, "Oh, look at this—not as good, but somewhat more complicated work with an adult scout grappling with this adult issue." So, right. yeah, I think it's a great novel. And of the three of us, great novel. Only writer, only writers read *Ghost Set of Watchmen*, right? You didn't read it, Julia? I, no, I haven't read it. I haven't read *Ghost Set of Watchmen* either. Oh, I thought you had. No. I haven't read it either. You know what? When the book came out, I was excited to read it. And then um, I read the sample chapter that was in the New York Times or something. And then I started to read all of the reviews. And then I read um, my friend David Eulin's really insightful uh, take on the book as, you know, not a a book, but as a basically as a writing exercise to see how one thing can become another thing. And the fact was, after reading all the criticism of the book, I didn't want to read it. Right. You know, I, I didn't I didn't want to sully the understanding and feelings and emotions I have tied into. Oh, um, so you're scared Mockingbird. of complexity. 
is what you're you, you want to I, stay in a childlike version yes, vision of yes. race relations in America. Okay. What okay. I'd like what I'd like to do now, writer, is give you thirty dollars and my insurance card, and uh, we can end this session. <laughs> All right. Here's the question but, that, that 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 would come into my mind on this based on this discussion. As a writer or an artist or a filmmaker, whatever category is applicable, would you rather make one great great lasting work of art that reaches the heights of To Kill a Mockingbird and then not do anything else and be happy with that? Or would you want to be like, I don't know, name your great artist who has riffed and done a million different things, some hit or misses? Like Uh, Dickens? Shakespeare or Dickens. Well, yeah, I mean, both of those are really pretty incredibly popular, but... I'm thinking more yeah. like, well, maybe Mark Twain, if we're going to yeah. say, because Mark Twain is, you know, he's still really known for Huck Finn and his, his other work is all considered lesser work. And Huck Finn has weak spots. Right. Sorry. Sorry, right. Sam. Um, but it's it's <laughs> less of a cohesive work than To Kill a Mockingbird or Lord of the Flies, which I think is another amazing one-off. One-off, right. Yeah, but he wrote other books that just weren't as good. All right, um, so which would you rather be, Todd? Well, I think it would depend how old I was when I wrote this great work of literature. I mean, if I wrote one great book when I was 24 or something, I, I think it would be tough to not continue to write. If I wrote one great book at 45 and it set me up financially also for the rest of my life, right. fuck yeah, I'd be, I'd, I'd be, I'd be eating hot fudge sundaes and uh, sitting on a boat somewhere. I don't don't know. I I think I would prefer the sustained career because I I don't. I'm never satisfied personally with whatever I've created. I always think that the best thing is going to be the next thing. Well, I understand that, you know, thought process, but I would definitely go for the one off, especially if it's something that has social impact that changes the way that people see or think about something that opens up empathy and that lasts longer, you know, that lasts a long Mm. time. You know, I, that's, it's a really interesting question and I would rather write one great thing. Well, I guess let's put it this way. I'd rather write one great thing that is greater than the sum of all the shitty things I was cranking out. You know what I mean? That's why <laughs> that's why Shakespeare is a bad example yeah. is because he wrote a lot of great things. But if the question is right. one great thing or a sustained or a bunch of middling things. Yes, right. exactly. Completely one great. Maybe like so, some people notice, maybe you made some money, you made a living or whatever, but you're right. not. I don't know, man. I'm I I think the 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 times I look back on in my life when I've rested on any laurels or like just been like one thing or been happy with one project, those are the worst. Like I always need to be moving forward. Like, you know, maybe to a fault. I mean, maybe this is the, you know, Jack of all trade master of none kind of problem, but it's just in terms of my lifestyle. I love like coming up with something new or focusing on something new or random or different. It's just so much more. I mean, that's what makes life worth living for me. I couldn't imagine just shutting out the public or shutting out an entire, you know, even like you look at somebody like J.D. Salinger, I, I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Like what, why do you just stop or close the door on the public that you're trying to engage with or trying to reach as an artist? Seems well, to me. maybe because you don't want to engage with the public. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the other question is that 
I mean, we're all writers and artists, so we understand the anxiety of the creation and then the anxiety of the completion and then the anxiety of the reception. Right. And if you don't, if you don't need to deal with that, like if you don't want that in your life or you can't cope with it, um, you know, receding from public view and living a comfortable life without anxiety and depression, that sounds fine. <laughs> that yeah. sounds perfectly fine. I mean, I don't know if I agreed with that, you know, when I was when I was 20, you know, but now I do. And, you know, I it's so it, it's something that I've actually thought about in relation to some of my favorite writers and the books of theirs that I haven't liked. So I, I think of a writer like uh, like Tim O'Brien, for instance, where he really hasn't written anything in the last 15 or 20 years that I've liked. Um, and. And I think, well, I, you know, I don't have to keep reading him. I can just enjoy what he's done in the past. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want to still create lasting works of art. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I don't, it, you can't talk to any writer who is not constantly thinking of something new and also thinking of the terror associated with it. <laughs> so well, maybe very, living with less terror is good. A, a really interesting example of this is um, Invisible Band by Ralph Ellison mm -hmm. uh, because he really did not write another book after that. I think they published something else after he died, a collection or, or a work in progress. But in uh, I had a professor in, uh, at Occidental, my first college, a, a great teacher um, named Eric Newhall, and he had this whole theory uh, about Ralph Ellison basically saying that he, if you read Invisible Man, it ends with him like alone underground, I think. It's like the character mm -hmm. has tried all these different identities and tried all these different things to, to address, you know, the challenges in his life. And of course, the challenges of being black in America and finds himself alone, like in a basement, scribbling away. And... He was sort of saying that that's kind of the hole that Ralph Ellison found himself in as an artist. It was like, you know, you can, you can, after, after a certain point, he was exhausted and he was sort of trapped by his own creative um, right. impulses and didn't, didn't know how, didn't know how to engage more than, you know, what he had done with each chapter of that book and was sort of exhausted. Uh, interesting. Well, and I think the case with Harper Lee is, you know, maybe she just didn't want to write anymore. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe she just wanted to do whatever it was she was doing. Yeah. We ascribe great mystery to people who recede from public view and don't create art anymore um, because of our own things. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe she just didn't want to do it anymore, mm -hmm. um, which is perfectly reasonable. You know, um, I think the, the key thing is that at, at this point in time, um, I, I wonder about books that have the lasting durability of To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, what is the book that in 60 years... Is it even years, possible anymore? I don't know. I mean, in we live in such years, an engaged time. Like, I don't think that we live in a time where that believes in canonization the same way that, like, previous generations did. I mean, uh, just the fact that it's hard to... It's hard, you know, I mean, remember when we had um, the our, 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 the teacher on our show, the English teacher. And she was oh, Heather. About, yeah, yeah, Heather, Heather was talk, Just talking about, like, how it, it, you have these certain older texts that you can rely on, but the questions of what to introduce students to is just so, so fraught right now 
with mm-hmm. political weight and meaning, and there's obviously been uh, just a reversion of the whole concept of can- the canon in the postmodern academic movement. That I just don't know. Like, and, and then we all engage so much with social media and constant information. Do do is do we believe as a culture that there are like certain books that kids should read? Well, I think right. I think a new canon will emerge because as we are so connected, you know, there will always be this desire to have a shared language language with which to discuss art. I mean, like, how can you say there's no canon when everybody basically watches the same 15 TV shows, you know? Like, it's just, it's gonna happen. <laughs> but, but they don't age, but they don't age. Like, people, no one wants to, even and movies don't age well either, like, in the same way. It's like, unless you're in a movie aficionado or you like the classics, who is really... Outside of a film school, who's sitting down and, and watching Citizen Kane or, you know, other great movies, Tokyo Story or name your, you know, they do these surveys of filmmakers and they always have like their list of top 10 films. And I'm always like, oh, my God, I've only seen two of these. And here I am mm-hmm. like working in that industry. And I think that that media, new media does not age well. Like who's watching Cheers episodes right now? Mm-hmm. Like they're watching New Girl. They're watching whatever. Or New Girl's probably still outdated. Like what's the latest whatever. Is New Girl even still on TV? Is that, is that, is that show on TV? Just goes to show how, how outdated I am on my TV. <laughs> but, you know, actually, that is a good... I wonder. Maybe maybe Mad Men will age incredibly well, and Breaking Bad will age well, and that's why it's a golden age of television. But even still, I, I don't know if kids today are watching movies from the 70s. I just feel like we're in a, we're, we're, we're in, in a time where we are all obsessed with the new so much right. and and fresh everything is available to us and so the fact that something is available to us that's older means we don't necessarily think we should rush out and watch it and i'm i'm i'm, I'm totally i you know fall prey to this too it's like the older even the older books like that i know i should get around to reading i put on my shelf but then i want to read the thing that just came out or that everybody's talking about Right. And that's, you know, that's uh, becoming more and more of a cultural obsession. I, I just don't know if we care as much about these sort of bedrock. Well, you know, this uh, this week in Palm Springs um, was Modernism Week, which is a celebration of modernist architecture um, and modernist design in Palm Springs, because Palm Springs has, you know, this this huge trove of, of modernist design. And the, the thing that surprises me always is that when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s living here, these modernist homes that people are spending millions and millions of dollars to restore and live in and, and you know, bring in the, the accurate furniture of the era, all that, they were the houses that people's dads moved into after the divorce because they were like $35,000 in the wrong end of town. Right. Um, but the, the surprising thing is at Modernism Week, um, they have this whole area that they call camp. And it's uh, it's got displays and installments of art and uh, design work and fixtures and all this stuff. And there was just one whole section of camp devoted to Mad Men. So Matt Weiner, the creator of the show, he was going to talk during later in the week. But it had the design of Mad Men. It, it had um, like clothes for Mad Men, all this stuff. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it, and people are like, "Oh my God, look at all this stuff that's from the period, and it's all Mad Men." And I'm like. You're looking at the things they recreated for the TV show to based, represent the period, represent yeah. the period right. that is going that you can go see the actual thing up. And people were far more excited in the displays from Mad Men than they were all the other actual things from the, the period of modernism in the, in the 50s and 60s. 
That's that's um, a very postmodern modernism. It it really <laughs> was. It it was a really strange thing. Um, but the thing was that surprised me also is that the people that were there looking at all this stuff, and this goes to this larger question of canonization, they were all ages. You know, there were teenagers that were there, and there were eighty-five year olds that were there. So there were that's people cool. that lived through the period and then there were the the teenagers who are you know the hipsters that are co-opting that style essentially and yeah. and so that that sort of gave me a sense that things that are artistically valuable remain valuable to people who are willing to get invested in some way so yeah who knows? and i feel like you know we have this like churn of books come out but maybe they're just aren't maybe a canon worthy book has not crossed the public threshold lately you know like the, here's a non-literary example but i actually saw hamilton on tuesday the musical oh my god how was it um okay let me preface this by saying i see a lot of shows because i've always lived near new york and i know right. all the tricks it was probably the best thing i've ever seen and uh, I felt like that's so and I everybody says. But here's the thing. So here's why it's related to this discussion. Like I've never, you know, obviously musicals are a much smaller pool of what actually gets produced, but I've not seen a show that properly resents this cultural moment ever in my lifetime. Well, no. I have once before and that was rent. You know, so it felt like rent of like, oh, my God, this is being made now for this time. The writing, the music and the casting are all reflective of where we are. And it just felt like it just blows every other musical out of the way and makes them seem really outdated. So Mm -hmm. it's in the canon automatically because it was. But that's an interesting comparison because then rent dates horribly. Like rent aged horribly. Like you watch it now and you're like, oh my. It's like watching God. cats. Yeah. Oh, it's, not... it's painful. Yeah. Yeah, but is that because we are right after that period? How will that feel in fifty years? You know. Well, I don't the other know. thing is, I wonder if rent, if it's to people that live in large urban centers, has aged poorly because. You know, we saw these things, you know, we were aware of AIDS, things like that. But if you play it in Paducah, is it a capsule of a time that they were not um, privy to? Right. You know what I mean? Yep. So, and that's why you know, it's canon. That's that's what puts it in the canon. Not because it's great, but because it is the, the one representation of this moment or this point of view. In Rent's case, mm-hmm. particularly. You know? All right. Well, speaking of uh, this moment in, in this our, time, yes. in this social justice, sweet segue. Let's, yes, uh, like let's turn to this essay from Esquire. Uh, so, it, Todd, why don't you introduce it? Because you you know uh, you know the author, and that's why I do, I do. So, but great timing for Harper Lee. Thank you for uh, taking this day to pass away that we're reading this, so we can dovetail from To Kill a Mockingbird <laughs> into today's great issues of social justice. So. Uh, this article, The Real Muslims of Irving, Texas, is a it's a very long piece of journalism in uh, this month's Esquire by Colby Bazell. It's probably 10,000 words, which is amazing because you just don't see features this long in magazines anymore. Uh, Colby Bazell is the author of three books, uh, including My War, Killing Time in Iraq, which details his time um, in the Stryker Brigade in Iraq, um, where he was in 2003 and 2004. 
Lost in America, uh, which was a book of him upon his return to America, driving across the country and hitting places around the, the country for six months and basically landing in Detroit. And then most recently, a book of essays called Thank You for Being Expendable, um, which has dealt with his time um, essentially as a veteran with PTSD in this new world. Um, he's uh, a young man. He's in his 30s. Um, he was a student in the MFA program that I direct, but I was a fan of his before he was a student. So his book, My War, actually came out of blogs that he was writing from the front lines in Iraq, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it was one of those things where like someone would read it and they'd send you an email and be like, holy shit, you got to read this. There's a guy who's blogging like five seconds after a firefight and and telling the you know the actual truth of what's going on in you know these this door-to-door fighting that they're doing um and so it was really wildly popular in 2003 and uh so popular that the wall street journal and npr picked it up and then colby got a uh, visit from the head of the armed forces in iraq where he was who encouraged him to not write that blog anymore. Wow. <laughs> so um, I didn't know any of this. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating thing. So this the book came out of that. He's been a journalist for many years, um, and so I, I had read my war, and then when he applied to my program, I was I was super excited. Um, so this article, the real Muslims of Irving, Texas, uh, he wrote it in December, um, which is of course right after the terrorist shootings in San Bernardino, which is just up the street from where I live just down the street from where Ryder lives. Um, and so Colby was sent to Irving, Texas, where there's a mosque and where there are uh, armed protesters standing in front of it on a regular basis with AK-47s and the like. Um, and that is the basis for the beginning of the piece. So Also, a, I think the timing, it, it, it's right after Trump called for a ban. Banning Muslims, Muslims yeah. Right, or yeah. banning Muslims. Yeah. So the, it, essentially, it's right now is when it's taking place because um, nothing has really changed um, about this at all. So uh, he uh, sent me this piece before we did a talk together um, on a stage in uh, here in Palm Desert where we I interviewed him in front of about 350 people. And it was is actually sort of fascinating because uh, where I live you know, it's it's California, of course, and it's Southern California, so it's fairly liberal in general. But where I live is actually fairly conservative. It's very wealthy. It's very white, um, except for the parts of town which are low income and Hispanic. And we were talking about his time in Iraq. We were talking about his book of essays. And then we were talking a bit about this piece. And when we opened it up for questions, there was a woman who raised her hand in the audience and she said, well, weren't you scared walking into that mosque? Because everybody knows that in every mosque in America, there, there are terrorists. Jeez. What? And it was one, and it was one of those moments where I was like, it, it, am I, is this happening in, in real time, in real life, this is happening? And both Colby and I were like, what? 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 And I, I just, I, I was like, that, that's not true. That's like saying, in every church in America, there's a serial killer. It's it's just not true. And then this woman starts spouting even more crazy Fox News shit that you know is not true. Um, but that's the sort of world that we live in, um, where people have these beliefs. So the other thing to know about Colby 
the important thing to know is you see him and you know within about five seconds he's not a kind of person you want to fuck with (laughs) (laughs) so he was sort of the perfect person to send uh to go into this mosque and to meet these uh, armed people out front of it because um he's not scared of anybody and people are generally pretty scared of him (laughs) so uh that that's the setup for who this guy is um and I, I thought this piece was an incredible piece of first-person journalism, but I'll let you guys uh, give your thoughts about it. Well, I think, like, hearing that story, I think, you know, my my feeling by the end of this piece, it, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's well-written, and it's, it's fast. I mean, the best part about it is just, you know, he opens talking about shooting up mosques yeah. when he was in battle. And, you know, actually being an armed aggressor towards, uh, Muslims. you know, what is essentially, a, yeah, towards Muslims, but, but, you know, also a place, a, a, a sanctuary, a religious mm-hmm. place. And then, you know, and then in that weird way, he sort of kind of falls in between the armed protesters in America who are standing outside of mosques with guns. It's like in a mm-hmm. weird way he can relate to that experience because he literally shot at mosques, um, and then on you know, and then on the other side, being what from all from what I can tell, reading an article, a pretty liberal guy, you know, who recognizes that not all Muslims are terrorists. Um, so he's sort of in this interesting position where he can relate to both sides or be a, a go between talking to both groups of people. Yeah. Um, so that part is great. But you know, ultimately, like for me, when I finished the article, I was like, so not all Muslims are terrorists. That's like Muslims are people too. Like they're mm-hmm. nice, you know, next door mm-hmm. neighborly Americans. Like kind of already knew that. <laughs> like, I don't know if, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I needed another essay on just on that point. Like I, I kind of wanted a more nuanced something or other. I don't know. It's like, I walked away being like, yeah, I, I actually wished he had delved more. The second half of the article, not even the second half, the last quarter of the article is him debating with the protesters, um, the right. guy, you know, the the white Christian Americans showing up with guns. He he talks to them in the parking lot and starts debating with them. I was more interested in that. Uh, you know, frankly, I found those portraits more compelling because they were uh, to me they're more mysterious to me. Uh, you know, who are these people that at first blush seem like, uh, uh, you know, I'm saying this with quotes, all American or sort of, we are, we know these people. I, I, I find those people way more interesting and mysterious than, say, your average Muslim who goes to a mosque and has a family. And I don't, so I guess, you know, but I guess my, like that feeling that I have and that sort of like, yeah, yeah, I got it, is completely belied by the story you just told, which is that this woman here in California, stood up and asked that question. So I guess, you know, from a political standpoint, we need more articles like this, obviously. (laughs) There's still a major awareness battle to be be fought just on a public relations. And, and, you know, we need to sort of make Americans, your average Americans or most Americans, aware that the word Muslim is not the same thing as terrorist. Right. I mean, we we live in a Whole Foods bubble, you know? We we really do. Because... um, you know, we we have surrounded ourselves with people who share our same beliefs, and so have they. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and that's the thing I think that we forget about is that you know we we choose the people that share our affinities, and so it's I think an article like this is important not just because uh, 
um, it shows these, you know, these guys with guns one way or shows the, the, the Muslims one way. It's that it also shows both of their pack behaviors. They both stick to their own. And anytime groups stick to their own, it it's a natural ghettoization process. Now, the Muslims in Irving, Texas, I think, have a really good reason to stick to their own because the people in Texas want to kill them. So, so there's there's a there's a pretty good reason for it. I mean, I think there was some really insightful stuff in there that I would like to read a lot more about, like um, one of the men from the mosque says, you know, we thought Texas would be great because we have traditional, again, quotes, family values. You know, yes, and there I is loved that quote. A it was like this weird yeah, yeah. dovetailing of like Christian American or, you know, Christian traditional values and Muslim mm -hmm. traditional. And you think absolutely. about it, you're like, yeah, the family values. Yep, kind of absolutely. Perfectly. And that sort of more complex stuff. I mean, I definitely think there was room for maybe if not in the piece, you know, certainly in this in this uh conversation cultural conversation not our conversation um yeah. but i i remember reading when i was working on um my other podcast sorry guys wow. um <laughs> wow this uh article about how to tell stories um about like for non-traditional npr listeners and it's like there's this desire to say like look at these muslims or look at these puerto ricans like look at their cool food and Look at them being all Puerto Rican or Muslim or Chinese or whatever. But instead, right. what you have to do is to sh tell a normal, everyday story in which the people are happen to be coming from some other background. And right. so for me, this piece was not like super successful, I'm sure, in convincing anyone that Muslims are people, too, which is, I agree, ridiculous. Um, but what's really interesting in terms of thinking like, about a soldier coming home and admitting that he knew absolutely nothing about the culture that he mm -hmm. was <laughs> attacking, essentially. Yep. Um, and so all that personal essay stuff, at first I was like, wow, this guy, like his, his personal essay voice is very strong. You know, like he's writing about, you know, like Esquire being super liberal and hiring him and he's very commenty on everything. But in the end, I felt like that really worked for the piece because he was fascinating in and of himself so you know, yeah you want to hear something crazy yeah so when i was interviewing him um i said you know what made you because he signed up for the military in 2003 or 2000, mm. late 2002 early 2003 and i said what made you sign up and he said well you know i was looking at my life and i was in sort of a shitty data entry job i was 26 and you know i sort of fucked up on some things and I was like, oh, there's a war. That sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then he went down and he signed up. Like, that was his process. And I, I said to him, did the war um, make you worse? You know, because he's, he suffered some, from some fairly uh, severe PTSD. Um, or did it bring out the things that were already inside of you? And he said, it brought out the things that were already inside of me. Um, and I was like, oh, that's that's pretty intense. But you see it in this piece, too. I think that once he got there, he recognized it was larger than just, oh, there's a war. Yeah, that sounds cool. I should go do that. You know, once he had to deal with the existential problems that he was having, then it all became 
more significant, um, which I think is why he's the perfect guy to, to write this piece. Um, can I read uh, my favorite little part of it, actually? And sure. it goes to what you're talking about, uh, Julia, in regards to the, hey, let's show these people for who they are. So this is, um, this is late in the essay. He, uh, Colby has gone, um, he's already gone in to the mosque. He's, and he just walks into the mosque essentially. And everyone's very nice to him and they show him how to pray and all kinds of stuff. And it's, you know, sort of a very kind and enlightening experience. And then he goes outside and, uh, talks to, um, some of the protesters, uh, all proudly tell me that they're born and raised in Texas. They say they've been doing disaster relief work for the last several days. I have, to ask, I have to ask if they help a mosque that was destroyed by the tornado. David looks down and smiles. Shaking his head a bit, he looks back up again and says, well, it would depend on the mosque, not if they're funding terrorism. Wright and his pals are convinced that the Richardson Mosque funds terrorist groups, and they have a problem with the Irving Mosque's Sharia court. These two things, they claim, are why they targeted these two, two particular mosques for their protests. Big John says Sharia law is counterintuitive to our constitution. Well then, you'll be happy to know that you're in no danger of ever living under Sharia law, I say. Of misunderstanding Sharia law, maybe, but not living under it. <laughs> I ask if any of them have any friends that are Muslim, or gotten to know any. The kid with the bullet necklace then enters the conversation. Yeah, I've spoken to Muslims a couple times, and some of them have threatened to cut my head off. Can't really say that I blame them, but I call bullshit. Please, God, somebody send this kid to basic training. Please let those drill sergeants have their way with this one. I press him on who these Muslims are that want to behead him. Well, on Facebook, okay, he's done. Shut the fuck up, kid. Just shut up. I lose it for a second. Their internet fantasies and determination for conflict are getting to me. What I love is that he is not an unbiased reporter in this right. regard. Yeah. Someone says something to him that's ludicrous, and he says, shut the fuck up, kid. Shut the fuck up. I love right. that. Because it... <laughs> It reflects, I think, the, the truth of the matter, which is that he, he's the one that had to go fight. He's the one that went to Iraq and fought a war based on other people's negligence. And this guy is harboring, you know, combat fantasies on the streets of Irving, Texas. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as an essay, it works really well. And yet the problem is, is that I think those of us who would like this attitude to change in the <laughs> in America, feel an anxiety for so much more than that. You know what I mean? Because right. shut the fuck up changes nothing. No. Um, <laughs> and but it makes you well, feel better. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does for sure. Um, but the question is, like, how do you how do you change this terrible misinformation and this terrible lack of empathy and humility and humanity. Um, and that's just such an overwhelming question at this moment. Um, they mention um, in the article, he mentions uh, Trump's call to ban all Muslims. And it's mm -hmm. just, I don't have a, a real point here other than I'm just super depressed. I mean, I don't know what, what I can do or what any literary figure can do to bridge this terrible problem this shocking problem we have with islamophobia in our country right now well i i feel like you know i said before when Ryder was talking that you know we live in this whole foods bubble and it becomes that question of okay how does a piece like this that 
deals logically with some of these questions and i think colby does deal logically with this fear and and um and hatred um and that he imposes also his experience of shooting up that mosque and seeing dead bodies and the people that he'd killed and then the other people that just want to go home that live next door to the mosque um you know how does a piece of literature transcend our bubble and reinforce our feelings and get to the people on you know on newsmax who need to see this how how does that happen how does that become part of the larger cultural conversation i mean i certainly feel like it being written by a soldier helps quite a lot Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know i mean it's obviously not a question that we can answer in our podcast um (laughs) (laughs) but it is an important question it's like if if you're writing a piece like this right now in America, do you have a duty to do everything you can to change to change minds if you believe strongly that minds should be changed? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm going to go out on a ledge and say that I I actually think counterintuitively the the more importantly right now we need to address the problems within Islam directly. And that, unfortunately, the left and liberal side of America is scared of being branded Islamophobic by criticizing a religion. So the same people that will easily say, like, fundamentalist Christians are fucking nuts and, you know, that there's such insanity there are scared to say that at the heart of another religion, which is a huge, you know, how many three billion people in the world Mm -hmm. believe in Islam there's also incredibly fucked up core tenets yeah. that we should be able to acknowledge and address. And part of my problem with this piece is that it's kind of really soft on the Muslims. And obviously picking this mosque in Irving, Texas, yeah, you, you, you're probably meeting pretty boring people. Like they're probably just normal, you know, mildly religious people. Um, but that's less interesting to me. I find that, and I also think that in terms of dialogue and changing people's minds, unfortunately, when you are scared to criticize a religion or the core tenets of a religion, the, you know that vacuum is going to be filled by Trump. You know the people, mm-hmm. it, the people that are going to be critical are going to be critical in blunt, horrible ways that are completely rejecting and not welcoming and create and more polarizing ultimately. Whereas if we were able to discuss the problems with the, at the core of, of Muslim beliefs, like there are problems, you know, like the, the way they treat women, the way they, um, you know, kill anybody who leaves the religion. Like there's major, major well, issues. And, and to at, be noted, not, not, not all Muslims kill other Muslims when they leave the religion. You're talking no, about the not. extreme, the extreme fundamentalists. Right. Of course. But, but yeah. there's a lot of them. And that's something that we should talk about because, mm-hmm. even, you know, people, there's a lot of, there, there's less crazy Christians and crazy Jewish people, but at the core of those religions, pretty, pretty fucking awful too. Right? Yeah. And, but, but <laughs> at we the live core of every those, religion, it's pretty fucking right. awful. Yeah. But I mean, I think that we need to acknowledge that, that within Islam, uh, a, a much, you know, the, the equivalent, uh, it's a medieval mentality is winning in a way that it's not in a Christian or a Jewish context. And that's just a fact. I mean, like, there are more, and I, you know, look, I mean, I, I know that, like, that's scary for us to talk about, but it's something that we should acknowledge. And 
you know, because we feel comfortable criticizing the more moderate religions of this country, um, but we're scared to criticize because we feel like we're going to be branded Islamophobic. But the truth is, like, we should be critical of these really stupid beliefs that, um, you know, enslave a lot of people of this world. Um, anyway, well, that's I why I felt like this was a soft article, because I'm much more interested in hit a more hard-hitting conversation, because if we're really going to get Muslims, you know, to uh, acknowledge the extremism within their religion and de-emphasize that in public discourse and, you know, not be so scared, not be so afraid of things like freedom of speech or the representation of Muhammad in a cartoon or well, in the I, newspaper. But like, I, I think I think that's what this article does, because this article is showing the non-extreme Muslims that your everyday your everyday Muslim in America is not someone who is going to slit your throat for drawing a cartoon. It's not going to be someone, you know, who's, you know, who's acting as crazy as the fundamentalist Christians or uh, apocalyptic Jews or the Mormons or whomever at whatever end of the spectrum. I mean, anytime. Right, but they were with... never the problem, right? Like, no, those, like, I don't but, care about a portrait of moderate and boring Muslims. Like, that's but see, not that's interesting. But that's, that's, but that's you. That, that's you. But the, here's the thing is that the reason where we need to look at moderate normal Muslims is that they are the majority. If you want to take a look at the the radical Muslims, turn on the news. <laughs> you know, the, mm -hmm. the, they're they're going to show you the radical on a fairly daily basis. So Are you but do you when you turn on the news, you're not actually engaging in conversations with radical no, Muslims. No, but though. you're also I mean, the radical Muslims are literally you know, shooting at right. the non-Muslim world or right. attacking or whatever. So, I, so I, I, I don't mean. think there's any, I don't think there's any question of people's desires to discuss the radical Muslims because that's all they discuss is the but radical Colby, Muslims. It, Colby, in this article, Colby does not press the Muslims the same way he presses the anti-Muslim protesters. He would never write this article and say, fuck you, crazy Muslim, shut the fuck up, Muslim you know, whatever, who are you, the way he says, shut the fuck up kid. And mm -hmm. that's interesting to me. Like that's, he soft pedals one side of this equation. Granted, they are boring, but why isn't he asking them about radicalization the same way that he's confronting the white, you know, anti-Muslim mm -hmm. protesters? He's, he, it's a very sort of, to me, it's like he's being tough on one side and trying, he has an agenda, which I agree with the, I agree with the agenda that like, yes, we should not obviously hate people for their religion, and we should not discriminate and we should not show up with guns. So I agree with him, but I'm just saying as an article, as a, as a, as a process of engagement between religions and between uh, communities, he's, he's soft on one side, really soft. And well, that's because we live in a time when... Except for the scene where he's shooting them all. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think... I, I see what you're saying, no, right? he's saying, I don't understand them. I didn't know, know right. what I was doing. That's a, He's saying, I was a dumbass, I, you know, or I was hired paid to do this this was you know part of my duty and mm -hmm. now i'm recognizing that i didn't understand this religion so here i'm going to go visit this religion well that's an opportunity to say well what about uh stoning women how do you feel mm -hmm. about that how do you feel about your the people within your religion who are doing these horrible things he doesn't ask them those questions instead he asks them like oh so you mow the lawn too like your other white neighbors who are non-muslim yes of course like I, okay but that's to me not really engaging with the problem the problem is within islam there is a, a, a radical element that is really fucking violent and horrible and it's 
destroying our world right now. And, you know, within Christian or Jewish traditions, there's radical elements too, but they're not the ones destroying the world right now. We're all aligning into a really sort of black and white situation that is unfortunately pushing a religion on one side when it should be extremism on one side, not one religion, right? So sure. within that religion, so, right we need to engage on both levels. But I, I think it could also be argued that the... Uh, the Judeo-Christian world has spent, I don't know, the previous 500 years yeah. uh, <laughs> acting violently towards other parts of the world, too. You know? Right. We don't, we're not in a violent... But we criticize them. You don't but, think that... Wait, I mean, wait, wait. We publicly constantly criticize that. Well, no, we don't. Because we are in a position of power. You know, we're, we being the Judeo-Christian world does not have to be violent at the moment because our violence has created the society that we now live in. So, you know, sure, we can, we, Whole Foods Bubble, can put down, uh, you Which know, would be a pretty good name for a band, by the way. <laughs> yeah, can, can criticize, you know, anything we want because nobody's coming after us. Um, but I think, Ryder, I do understand what you're saying, of course. However, you know, we need to make space for, we need to slow down and back up to a point where human beings are seeing each other as human beings. And so this article is not going to change the world, but if it is one slice of, you know, people seeing your everyday Muslim as a boring person, a boring neighbor, <laughs> that is positive. That is positive. Seeing the humanity in other people and not making people constantly answer for everything that someone else in their race or religion has done is of is worthwhile endeavor so of yes of course he could have written the article that you asked about but do you think it would have been published yeah sure absolutely who's are you kidding a soldier articles? who's publishing those articles well i right. don't know What's if that? anyone is writing it right now i don't know i don't read it that's everything. the problem I'm literally, like, there are only two people, or, like, there's only so many people, and, like, Sam Harris is one of them, and they are considered Islamophobic when they try and address these issues directly. And, you know, their, yeah, their goal I, I is think... exactly the same, which is engagement on a level where we are having conversations that move the, you know, move forward well, into he, a realm here's, of... Here's the thing that I think we're forgetting a step of. We are asking... We're asking white Americans, essentially, um, Christian Americans, to go figure out this Muslim problem, right? So I think the most compelling stuff yeah. I have read about these issues has come from Muslims. So like Reza Aslan or Leila Lalami. Um, you know, Leila Lalami writes a ton of, of fascinating stuff about uh, Islam. Um, and she's actually, she, she just started doing a monthly column in The Nation. Um, but... You know, it's nuanced and interesting takes on on the, the state of uh, Islam today, the state of Islam in America and the state of Islam internationally. So that sort of writing is going on. I think it's I think it for a piece like this. OK, so where they're sending I mean, there's a gimmick, right? You're sending a guy who fought in Iraq and shot up mosques to go talk to these people. So it's a feature mm -hmm. story for a magazine. It's not. Um, you know, it's not uh, it's not a political piece. It's it's essentially something you're going to read at the dentist's office. So having him do this story, you're asking him for a personal experience, not a long drawn out, 
socioeconomic, geopolitical discussion on religion that he doesn't know well, and that he's not very religious, so therefore, how is he going to talk about it vis-a-vis -vis his own religion? It's all that shit. So I think that conversation is going on. I think it's incumbent on um, Muslims in America to ask these questions because they have both of the answers. You know, they know the religion. Um, they have the experiences in many cases in other countries. They they can bridge that divide in an easier way, in a larger, more intellectual way than than a story like yeah. this that's supposed to do the do one thing, which is walk in and show mundane on both sides like th this is yeah that th i think that's the the catch-all that we have to understand is this is just mundane protest and mundane muslims you know like yeah. these guys aren't even organized to do shit they're just standing there <laughs> and the the thing that i think is best about the piece which i is I, I'm curious if you guys think is that while he is having this like boring CVS parking lot conversation with these stupid protesters mm -hmm. is that the entire time a young black man is being frisked and his car is being searched. Whereas right. at the beginning of the piece, um, Colby had said, you know, like, oh, look, I'm in this IHOP or whatever. And there's black people and there's white people and everything's solved. And when I read that opening, I was like, what? And then... <laughs> It's brilliant how at the end, you know, you just see this undercurrent of systematic, exhausting, again, mundane, you know, frustrating racial interactions happening in this stupid little Texas town. And I think that is what you're saying, Todd, is exactly right. It's like we have to capture how these cultures and these problems interact on a day to day setting because Yes, obviously we're in a moment of crisis in our world in terms of religion and violence and politics. But the the thing that we all have to live with for hundreds of years is the way that our everyday families and our everyday lives, you know, make it through every single day. Mm -hmm. And that is very important. It's very important in America. It's very important in Texas. And it's worth documenting how those moments play out, Yeah, I, I think. And I think that bit with the, the cop arresting the, the black kid is, is amazing because he's doing it while there's four guys with long guns standing there. <laughs> you yep. know? Right. Well, that's what I love. It's like, you know, when, when all those guys took over the ah, bird refuge Jesus in, Christ. in Oregon. And it was uh, just yeah. the, the question of like, can you imagine if like 50 armed black guys decided to just take over a government building? How different the response would be? Or 50 armed Muslims? Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a protest. No, it's not. That's an armed takeover of a government building. Like if you were not a bunch of white ranchers from Utah, you'd be whatever, dead. You'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this country still has a lot I, I would like to say, incidentally, that I did not spend like one evening for four hours watching one of those Oregon dudes live streaming what he thought was the FBI about to attack the ranch or the, yeah. the refuge. But I did. I did. And it was horrible because the guy was so stupid. <laughs> he was just the <laughs> dumbest guy alive. It's like, well, I... that's the, at the heart of all of these sort of like movements like the protesters in this article you just it, it ends up being stupefying yeah. you know you're just, it's like oh okay there's there's nothing here yeah. <laughs> it's like 
beyond the fact that you are wearing camo and that you have a gun, you actually have nothing going for nothing. you. And nothing. And that's why you've chosen this as your cause, is because there's nothing else in your pocket. Right. Like, there wasn't right. even anything on your Netflix queue. You're like, oh, no, no I don't want to see Dumb and Dumber 2. Right. Ah, Which is I... why we can look forward to President Trump, guys. <laughs> oh, great. Because oh, there's a God. lot of people that are just going to want to vote because he's saying it like it is. Well, when that when that happens... Reason, something, something to be scared of. We'll be, uh, we'll be doing this podcast from the forced labor camp. Larry Disco, episode yeah. 140, coming to you from the labor camps of uh, <laughs> Upper Volta, where we're living now. Oh God! For, for atheists and Jews. Yeah, I hope <laughs> the they put. I hope they put the atheists and the Jews together, because otherwise, I, I hope so, because then we can hang out. Yeah, out. I don't want to just be fun. around people who look like my sister. You know, that'd be boring. <laughs> <laughs> who wants that? Christ. Well, that was right. um, the Real Muslims of Irving, Texas, by Colby Bazell. It's on your um, magazine shelves now at your local stores. You can get it online. Also, if you pay the uh, membership price to get into Esquire, though, I think it'll be free at some point. Um, it's a great article. It's ten thousand words long. Um, it's in the Esquire with um, the guy who's now the host of the Daily Show on the cover, Trevor Noah. Is that his name? Yep. So it's the one with Trevor Noah on it. And uh, if you like this essay, I encourage you to go out and get colby's most recent book thank you for being expendable which is um absolutely fascinating um oh and i should tell you guys uh so just so you understand um this is good for you writer <laughs> to understand colby's feelings about extremism uh he, so this was this was right when isis um first sort of came up you know a year and a half ago two years ago i guess it was when they um they killed the american journalists um Colby was on CNN and he was being interviewed by Aaron Burnett. And this was before we had engaged with ISIS at all. And Aaron Burnett said to him, what do you think that we should do with ISIS? And Colby said, we need to go in and kill them all. We need to exterminate every last one of them. Um, so it's not as though he has softened his, his feelings about extremism. Um, and you know what we'll do? I'll, I'll find that clip and I'll, I'll put it up on our Facebook so people can see it after we uh, after we post this episode. Um, but you know he's been pretty he's been pretty out front on on those things um, on the news. He's been on CNN and Al Jazeera and all these different places talking about this stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, Colby Bazell is his name, and his other books are My War and Lost in America. And uh, if you want to be super depressed about uh, American engagement overseas, I recommend it highly. Oh,